G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced down here in Geelong and acknowledge the Wathaurung people as the traditional custodians on the lands that we made. I'd also like to extend those respects wherever you listen to the podcast and acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands where our podcast guests are joining us from. We know that First Nations Australians have told stories and used stories to pass on wisdom, create connection and share knowledge for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations and would like to pay homage to it as part of this podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. So, thank you for joining us as part of the GRDC In Conversation podcast and let's jump into it. Welcome back to another episode of GRDC In Conversation. One thing I absolutely love about this whole series is unearthing some of these incredible stories of just different people who have contributed and continue to contribute to the Australian grains industry. Every conversation brings something different within it. And this conversation with Roy Hamilton filled me with energy and optimism. And I walked away from it really just feeling pretty hopeful and optimistic about not just the role of agriculture, but the world we live in. Roy has been farming in and around Rand since his childhood in the 1960s and 70s. In this conversation, we touch on how over the generations, different farming practices have come to be and how they've then evolved. Continually getting better, as the access to information and knowledge grows. As a bit of a teaser to how this episode ends, and I can't just let you jump right to the end to skip to it. Roy says probably some of the most heartfelt words that I've ever been witness to at the helm of the podcast microphone. It's his raw honesty and his ability to share his story that make this one one of the really, really special chats. Enjoy. Roy Hamilton operates a 4,400-hectare mixed-family farming business near Rand in New South Wales, Riverina, alongside his wife, Leanne. He's been an early adopter of minimum till practices and direct drill and press wheel technology and is currently running controlled traffic farming on 12 metres. Mate, we might have to, you might actually have to explain a few of these things to me because uh, parts of it are a little bit beyond my pay grade, but you've been actively involved with the GRDC, with other advisory committees, and when it came up, Roy, someone said, have you got Roy Hamilton on your list? And I said, oh, I don't actually. And they said, you need to get him on because he's got a really interesting background of the, f- the family farming business, but also incredibly passionate about farm safety, which is a topic which I think often we don't necessarily talk about. And at the beginning of this podcast, we were just chatting off here about the importance of the human side. So it's obviously something that you're quite passionate about and, and keen to bring into the conversation of agriculture. Look, I am. I think... So I grew up, I was born in 58, I'm 65, and growing up in the 60s and 70s, the cultural practices around what your dad did or your granddad did, it wasn't so much about what we actually had learnt and what we could do better. And that was fairly entrenched about taking shortcuts, taking risks, fatigue, all those things. And at the end of the day, it's none of this is worth it if we can't get home in good shape or get home at all. So... After such an extensive period of time in farming, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning and keeps you involved? Growing things. It's not what you dealt. I mean, every year is different. We go from a, 
what we were last year, maybe a decile nine or ten to maybe a, a decile three or four this year. It's actually how you play your cards and, and how you prioritise what you're doing, how you're looking after your crops, how you're looking after your sheep. And every day in agriculture is different. And I think it's just the, the passion for growing the best way you can. There's always a challenge to do things better and that's about water use efficiency, about growing more with less and and how you manipulate those little dials all the way along, whether it's, you know, we've learned over the last 30 years, Ollie, about obviously about stubble retention, about summer spraying, about minimising soil disturbance, all these things which really has kept agriculture in the game and probably at the forefront of adapting to climate change. I've got a few questions off of that. If you could describe your ideal day in farming, what would it look like? My ideal day in farming, I'd be getting up about five, go for a walk with the dogs and come back and the phone hasn't rung by 7.30 and something hasn't gone wrong. I go out to do a bit of machinery and it starts. I operate that machinery without getting bogged. After the last two years, I suppose that's front of mind is just how challenging it was to do a job. To do your 10 or 12 or 14 hours like everyone else does and come back and have a beer and um, say you've achieved something for the day, something that's tangible. Um, another great day is actually, we do still have some sheep on this property, is um, getting behind a mob of sheep with a good sheep dog and um, just uh, letting it all happen. It's very therapeutic. Sheep, you've got to like animals to run sheep. Uh, people will go, oh, there's money in sheep, so I'll run sheep, but that doesn't work. You've got to first like the animals and then it will work for you. And there's a whole debate that we can get into, which we will avoid, but is a sheep dumb or are they actually intelligent because they have learned from previous experiences that maybe going through that gate isn't the thing they want to do so we'll avoid that one <laughs> yes i think sometimes you've got to put yourself on the other side of the fence and think how they're thinking instead of forcing them get on their side and just try and understand what works a bit better for them and there's been some great work done in that there's uh, some of these you know really uh, cool swanky yards setups shade everything like that is just made running sheep a lot less challenging maybe what it was but sheep are something i think if you're running them You've got to have adaptive time. You've got to have spare time available to react to things with sheep because they're a living animal. They're, um, it's not like a crop that on a Friday afternoon you think that might need attention. You get an agronomist on a Monday, spray it on a Tuesday and it's done. But if you're heading out on a Friday night and there's half a dozen sheep stuck in the dam, you've really got no choice. You've got to turn around and react to it. How has your business benefited from having the mixed enterprise? Oh, we're on a floodplain, Ollie, so we've got a lot of creek frontage that you can't readily farm. So it's there's some really good synergies in running sheep here. So we 80% of the business is cropping and 20% and livestock. So we tend to graze where we can graze the stock on early sowing crops, winter graze crops. Then we lock them up in the spring and then in the summer they, they've got all this um, stubble country to run on. So it works. It's very complementary. And it, I mean, I think with climate change, it's about yeah diversity of enterprise as much as we can because you never know when it's going to rain, how much it's going to rain. And these markets and the last six months is a great example of where markets can move very quickly. So I think the more pots you got on the go at once, the better. At the beginning, you were mentioning, and this is, I think, quite unique, and it's something I really want to tap into because I don't get, I guess, every day the opportunity to sit someone who has seen such a, a significant kind of period of farming and able to tap in and unlock this wisdom off you. You mentioned like in the last 20 or 30 years, the acceleration of GPS farming, controlled traffic farming, the stubble retention, etc. Across your life, can you talk through some of those periods and some of those changes that you've seen and has that change sped up? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it'll take a little while to uh, 
unpack. But if you go back in the into the 60s when my dad first came over, he was a Mallee boy, he was a farmer. And you had this demarcation between grazing and farming. You had the white collars, the graziers, and the blue collars of farmers. And the, the farmers would get the little paddock down the back to scratch around. They used to be called them cockies for a reason. They'd scratch around and get a bit of grain in. But there was this sort of demarcation between the two. There was very little mixed farming going on. And when Dad came over and took this property on, there was a pushback from people before that you'd kill the native grasses if you went farming and it had ruined the soil. And so... There was a change in that and then you got into the sort of 70s and 80s and you it was only in i was about 20 or 22 years old or secretary of the local farmers branch which was called the united farmers association i think it was then and then you had the graziers association they didn't merge until nearly the 80s and then that, that became the new south wales farmers association but there was up until then there was very little people that owned land and ran stock and farmed in in the riverine it was principally grazing country that was forced upon us in, um, let's say, the 80s when sheep declined as an enterprise and people were forced into cropping more ground and then the things swapped around a little bit and it became, it was an imperative to crop more of the land because sheep just didn't pay the bills. It was sort of there. And then probably the next phase was the Australian-built Queensland-type narrow point press wheel things that would tear into ground that this is terribly hard ground to farm in a traditional way with the spring release mechanism. Often you couldn't cover the seed when you wanted to sow. So they're sort of in the 80s and 90s, it was a bit of a revolution in how we farmed and that was disturbing the soil a lot less, having high breakouts and an increase in horsepower of, of what we could pull with. I mean, a big tractor in those days was 150 horsepower. Now you're four or five times that, but that was we needed the power to pull it to, to get the seed into the ground and place it where we needed to. And then you go up to the, sort of the millennium, I suppose, the next sort of the early 2000s, and then um, it was a very dry period and we learnt a lot about stubble retention, about summer spraying, about absolutely minimising any weed growth in the summer to, to maximise the ability to grow a crop on less rain in, in the growing season. We were pretty locked into what we call our April-October growing season. We get enough rain in that to grow crops in the 70s and 80s. But with this drying and warming climate, our rainfall patterns change quite a lot and we can get rain any time can be our dominant months, whereas it used to be winter dominant, now it's any time in the summer. So people have adapted to that really well over time and stayed in the game. That's probably three or four of the big changes. So, you know, back in the days, the first started farming with these tiny little tractors and offset discs that would chase you around the paddock when they'd skip out because they wouldn't penetrate. They'd just take off and you look out the side window and it was halfway around the tractor because it wasn't even in the ground. There was um, some fun times there, but that's the main one. I think, you know, obviously forever our, our terms of trade decline. So we either get bigger and or get better. If you stay in agriculture, it's probably like in any business. If you say you're there and you're stationary, you're actually going backwards. There's no happy state and you've got to keep striving to improve. And in our case, we're trying to um, manage paddocks more site specifically. So doing more testing and, and zoning paddocks more the when we came out as sort of British immigrants, I suppose, we are on the lower decks, mind you, but when they came out, the, um, they sort of fenced off by a square mile and that didn't mean all the paddock was the same and um, there's high variability within our soils. So we're trying to manage those by their need and by their constraints to hopefully um, stay in the game. Have you found 
over your time that that need to continue to strive to improve because of the need to get that economies of scale, the declining terms of trade. Have you found it tiring or have you found it invigorating to continue to, I guess, push forward and never settle? Yeah. Oh, absolutely invigorating. It's a personal challenge. If you can grow, you know, 16 kilograms of wheat per millimetre of rain, why didn't you grow 18? The yield mapping is fantastic on harvesters. I mean, the truth detector and you, you go across a paddock and you know the zone's quite similar and you, you'll be going along at four and a half tonne and it drops to 2.8 or 3.3 and you I'm more interested in why, that what's going on there and than what the average of the paddock was because we spent exactly the same amount across that whole field. But you get this variability and it's not necessarily bringing that 3.3 up to four and a half. It's maybe four and a half should have been doing five and the other one should have been doing three and a half. But understanding this is getting onto soils and I think this is a new frontier or the, the great frontier is instead of looking over the fence, a lot of us now are looking downwards and saying, how can we get more about what we've got? Because it's quite constrained in expansion at the moment. It's difficult with price plus interest rate plus commodity prices out. Our gross margins haven't improved anywhere near land values have. I'm interested. This is something I often really, really think about. And it's only occurred to me at different times where I'm sitting in in a tractor sowing or doing a bit of spraying or actually in the head of harvesting. But I've never actually asked anyone this. I'll be interested. What is the most critical job and one that you wouldn't, that you'd, I guess, maintain control over across the southern growing season from planting right through to harvest? The most critical, so once you've planted the crop to harvest? I'd say across that whole spectrum from planting right through to harvest, what is the most important and critical practice? I reckon ground truthing, just actually being in the field and seeing what's going on. So there could be, it could be nutrition or it could be um, herbicide, but actually being in the field and for all the remote data we can have, if you can get in the paddock and just feel what's going on, just ground truthing, I think is more important and, and timing is so there's four or five operations probably between the two. There's early post-emergent spraying, there's early nutrition, late nutrition, rate spraying, disease monitoring. But it's probably just attention to detail and timing would be the two things. I can't think of a single most important one than above it because that's going to be dependent on the season. You might have a higher disease risk like we had last year. This year was probably trying to manage nutrition in a, in a drying season was probably front of mind. So each of those ones is going to be come to the forefront depending on what decile year you may be in. I think in 50 years of farming, the two things are probably is attention to detail and timing. And that can go right through from when you're planting next year's crop, which we've started to do now, is getting stuff on time and the right and be prepared so you're in the right window. So before we jump in and, and chat about soils, I'd love to know, the type of farmer that your father was and what you took from him because you did head off to boarding school for a few years but that time with your father what did you learn about the way he farmed and what were your big takeaways i learned passion i didn't learn a lot in the practical sense yeah i did correspondence school at home and we did very little farming then but i, I loved the farming side with him i used to sit in the tractor with him one of those old chain ones with a bench seat that's probably got industrial deafness from it but they were great fun I used to scream and sit there all day in the tractor with him. Uh, that was a 306 Chamberlain and a 14 disc plough, and that was a bit of barley, a bit of oats, you know, 100 hectares, uh, sorry, 100 hectares here, maybe 200 hectares, and that was about it in those days because there was constraints. They were still um, leasing country and there was constraints on, uh, yeah, about turning over this native grass. He would like to farm them all because that's what he did in the Mallee. He, uh, 
he was passionate about his cropping. I went away to boarding school for five years. Unfortunately, he passed away the year I came home and we had about 12 months together. And that was a terrible time. That was 73, 74. So those two years, we didn't sell a grain off the place. We had two failed harvests in a row. And as far as the sheep went, we shore in June 73 and we didn't shear until December 74 because of the flooding. And it, it, it actually reminded me last year, it was a similar sort of story, but it went on for two years. And uh, I think honestly, probably broke his heart. That was so, we, we had 12, yeah, 12 months, but when we tried to get back into it, the country was so sour. The bull rushes, pin rushes, were up about a uh, about a metre high, nearly over all the farm. It was just a just a mess. And unfortunately, he passed away then. But he, there was a few things he I learnt from him. He said, "Never ever ask anyone to do anything you're not going to do yourself or are prepared to do yourself." And he did say to me, and I uh, mentioned to Millie the other day, and he said to me, because he only jackarooed, we'd never had any tertiary training, but he said, look, there's more than one way to do something. He said, mine mightn't be the right way, so I want you to go away and learn. That was In those days, that was just jackarooing. There was nothing really around apart from that. So they were a couple of things I learnt, and they stuck with me, hopefully, through my working life. Did you get the chance to go away, or was it the hand forced on you with his passing? Yeah, no, I didn't get to go away. Unfortunately, it would have been good for that. But the only reason we are here now, still on this farm, if I might touch on my mum, who's still alive, she's 92. She's legally blind. She still bumps around in a unit in Corowa. She uses a cane and gets around. And she does about eight hours of quizzes a week, I think, on the radio. And she just keeps doing everything she possibly can for as long as she can. That's her words. She will um, keep herself going doing that and that she was, when dad died, she was 45. She had three children, a, a large debt and things weren't going very well. We'd had, as I say, two years of losses, of no crop, no 75 wasn't great. So I remember going into the bank with her. I was 18, mum was 45. And in those days, a local bank manager had a, a tweed coat and a glass as usually, used to drink with the solicitor, the doctor. And um, he had, had all the nice words and eventually he sort of looked over his glasses and he said, my mum's name's Helen. She, he said, oh, of course, Helen, we, we'll look after you and, and tell the sale. And mum just stiffened up in a seat. She doesn't say much. And she got home and with steely determination, she hung on. But it wasn't common and it, probably that a 45-year-old woman by herself would keep a farm going. This is talking 19, this is nearly 50 years ago now. So the only reason we are here today is because of her determination. What an extraordinary woman. So so you mentioned that your dad gave you the advice, there's more than one way to do a job and mine might not be the right way, so go and get that experience. That is just such good advice and so forward-thinking and progressive. So beyond that, as you came back into the business, your mum really took the reins of it. What did you learn through her? I learned probably um, determination, hard work, respect and cooperation. We worked really well together. Mum and I were here for a, year, a few years just ourselves and uh, it was, um, actually it just comes to mind, I, all of 19 I decided I need to buy a, buy a harvester ollie to go and behind this orange tractor of mine, the 306. So I said, Mum, I think we need to buy our own harvester instead of getting a contractor. So I went down to the machinery dealer at Cora and it was a 585 Massey header, second, or well, probably third hand. It was about $5,000 worth. It was a big investment at the time. And um, anyway, I... With mum's total support, we bought this harvester and got it home. And unbeknown to me, mum had rung the dealer up. Tom, Tommy O'Brien was a dealer, a lovely bloke. And 
she said, Tom, I'm worried. I don't think Roy knows what he's doing. And uh, Tom said to his credit, he said, look, if it, Helen, if it doesn't work out, I'll take the harvester back afterwards and you can have your money back. So we had some really good people around us that had our back at the time. So, yeah, that harvester did stay here in the end and it, it was a success. And eight or ten harvesters since have been successful. But, I, yeah, I still remember the first one the best. Old Tommy O'Brien, <laughs> he never needed to take it back. But what, what a bloke as well. How did the business grow and evolve as you moved away from the livestock into mm. more of the cropping and farming side? Yeah, so we always I always took an opportunity to, if we possibly could, to expand the business. We bought land in 1980 and 93 and 04, 07 and 10. We sold a little bit in 7 to buy 10. But we, so we grew in scale over that time. During that time, I did some contracting, did some share farming. I used to say to the share farming mate of mine, I was there for 20 years. We wrote a document up the first year. And it never came out of the drawer for 20 years. That's the sort of bloke he was. He just, just a fantastic guy. His only consideration was that I had two cold stubbies at nine o'clock at night when I knocked off for the drive home. And you're not allowed, oh, sorry, you're not allowed to do that these days, but that was his <laughs> principal consideration. And he was just a beautiful person to work for. And we, we never needed to um, review that document for the whole time I was there. And um, so that share farming, I used to say to him, I said, you've educated my kids. All the kids went to boarding school. And it was, yes, probably through the share farming that we they gave us enough scale to do that. As far as learning goes, the early days, there wasn't the agronomists around that there are now. And certainly it wasn't private ones. There was a couple of DAs around. But I used to go to the front bar at the Daysdale Hotel and after playing footy or trying to play footy, and go down the end of the guys that there'd be the guys that have done really well. They typically have a fair lane out the front and they'd buy a new Holland header every three years. And so I'd sit down there and just pepper them with questions about how you should do this. What do you plough then and, and what should you do here? And uh, I found that was fantastic. Agriculture then, 50 years ago now, is a very collegiate industry and, and people are very willing to share ideas for the betterment of the whole industry. They most people don't hang on to stuff. They don't, don't find an advantage. We're not competing with each other. We're working together. And I'm um, ever grateful for everyone that shared information and, and helped me along the journey, particularly in early days when I don't know a lot now, but I knew a lot less then. The original grower group, by the sounds of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and a couple of beers thrown in. It was great fun. But yeah, they, um, I remember one bloke, one bloke told me, he said, look, he said, this harrowing, you know, he said, every time you harrow the paddock, you'll get another bag to the acre. This is before we went metric. And I, I couldn't quite get my head around why we're actually doing this. They used to call this conservation tillage. I think if you're bored with your wife or something and you want to get out of the house, you go and cultivate a paddock again just to get away. <laughs> get away from the kids or something like that. And, and was it these blokes from the bar that, really started to introduce you to the, these new and progressive ways of farming. And, and I guess on top of that, like where were they getting their information from and, or were they just the, I guess, the forward-thinking innovators that were willing to try different things? Yeah. I think they were early adopters. They um, probably had enough momentum and they, they probably didn't have a, a private consultant. A lot of the private consultants sort of grew when the DA, I'm talking for New South Wales now, when they sort of phased out the district agronomist, a lot of those guys and girls went private and, and they've been a godsend. They've been fantastic. It's We really miss that mentoring that the Department of Ag used to provide by having people learn in different ways. And some people prefer to learn just sitting around in a couple of hay bales in the back of a shed with half a dozen blokes and a facilitator. So we do miss them. These blokes, yeah, they probably spoke to their retailer. They probably went for a drive every year. Some of these... you. In businesses, it's 
not so much working in your business but working on it and a lot of these guys might just take a trip up north and have a look around or go over south australia and open your horizon because it's very easy to get bogged in the now and, and what you're working on but to get away and look back at it where do you reckon you've fall into that adoption curve and, and even with some of the newer technologies that are coming in now are you an early adopter or do you wait a little bit normally uh, we're fairly early adopters. If there's a business case, we'll have yeah, we'll have a go at it for sure. Because I, I, if you don't, I mean, a case in point, uh, optical spraying, which we'd like to get into. We've just bought a new boom. Uh, we chose to just stay out of because it's the same price to retrofit it as it is to fit on there. And there's so much movement in that space at the moment. Another year or two is not going to make a big difference to it, but it will be a terrific innovation uh, in this area as there's more algorithms written and we understand uh, green on brown and green on green technology, it's going to be fantastic. And society will want to know why we're not using this sort of technology if it's available in agriculture, because this gets onto this whole um, sort of right to farm and social licence around how we're doing it. Because we're not only, I don't think we own the land, we own the right to manage the land in our lifetime. And we're also custodians of land for the rest of the nation and we want to make sure we're doing the right thing by everyone. And I don't know anyone in Ag that doesn't want to do the right thing. You know, our mission, one of our mission statements is to leave the land better than we found it on, in a family document and we're very keen on pursuing anything that will minimise our environmental footprint and enhance our soil health because our soil's our... I mean, it's our greatest asset. I'm going to say... Roy, and I don't want to pump your tyres up here, but you're incredibly progressive in the way you think about these different things. Is it, what has shaped that? I think the desire to be, again, if why not strive for constant improvement? I remember, guys, I went to a funeral, a lovely fellow, and he, one of the things in the eulogy was every time he got in a ute and drove down the paddock, he would analyse what he was going to do and why couldn't he do it better and I sort of struck a chord with me that's very much how I feel okay I'm satisfied with that but there's the bar if the bar is there why can't it be higher why can't we achieve more because again it, it, if you strive to be up a little bit higher you're further from the bottom basically and less vulnerable to four-year drought or something else that'll go wrong, interest rates. I mean, I, I lived through interest rates that we bought my son land at around about 10% and 18 months later it was at 19 and a half and it was still going up. And those, they're very challenging times, but the more, I guess I'm talking about trying to build resilience in the business by being the best that you could possibly be at any given time. And I think as far as influencing business resilience, it's about managing those lost years as much as making good money in the good years. I think everyone can do that. But more often than not, we're going to be challenged to break or even have a little loss. But understanding where we're at any given time is really important. And just striving to, mine is driven by trying to do the best job I can every day. From a practical sense, what are some of those systems that you're using now to help give you a, a greater insight into where your business is sitting? I do love data. I'm, we've been yield mapping for 20-odd years. We've got really good rainfall records. We've got really good paddock records. I think they're reasonably good of gross margins over time. It's really dangerous to look at something for one or two years and say that's really working well. I really like to look at over eight or 10 years, whether it's a cropping sequence or a particular commodity, because you've got to run it through the, the decile sevens and the decile twos to see if it's, I suppose, given it a resilience test itself to see how it really fits in the business. But Understanding your cost of production, understanding your profit drivers, 
And yeah, this is probably the main one. It's just understanding. Try and take the noise out of it, the, the short-term stuff, and look at it long-term. Is a trend in the right direction? Mm, it's really interesting, especially at the moment as people face these depressions in terms of income through seasonal conditions, prices, etc. If you do look at it over a longer period of time, it, it does give you a, a far clearer insight. If you're good at sheep and you've been running sheep for a while, you get through this period, no problem. This is a little blink. If you look at a rolling average of lambs over the last five years, it's been really good. It's been over the, the 15 trend, 15 year trend line by a fair way. This is hard, and but it's really easy to be quite reactive and say, I've got to get out of sheep because there's no money in them. There probably isn't just at the moment, but markets have a great way of evening things out. And as that price drops, the market opens up and hopefully there's more consumption and, and it meets in the middle somewhere. And uh, you cannot, the biggest, I think, downfall in agriculture is chasing waves. It, it's really easy to chase ways and go, well, that, that pulse is worth $1,000 a tonne, so I'll put half a million into that pulse, but is your country suitable to is for it? Is it the right season to do that? And chasing rainbows, chasing waves is a way of going backwards pretty quick. But I think if you're good at it, you stick at it, and hopefully, yeah, that, that you get through the other side where you have these short terms. And I mean, we were drunk two years ago with commodity prices when you think about everything was in the top percentile. Everything was. It was crazy times and uh, it's uh, no one rings a bell to say that's the top of the market until after it's gone. Well, and they're, they're called records for a reason too, aren't they? <laughs> they don't stick around at record levels forever. Oh, absolutely. The other great one I think you learn in, in farming is, you know, average is just a midpoint of two extremes. I like that. And often often you're managing one side of average. The Riverine Plains, you were a founding committee member of that farming group that has just continued to evolve. And, and I think over the last couple of years, they've really, I'll say, stepped ahead again in terms of the way they've brought to people together, the information they're sharing, the way that they're running that, not just for the members, but actually more broadly across the sector and, and bringing in the likes of Uncle Toby's and others. It's kind of these businesses that really do have quite an influence and a vested interest in what's happening in the grain growing regions, but it's often maybe we don't actually bring them to the table to get their input in it. So when did you get involved with Riverine Plains and what does that look like? I got involved in Riv Plains since inception. We had a, a couple of, I suppose, expressions of interest meetings. I think Malcolm Ferguson might have rung me up and said, oh, would you come down? Because we're trying to work out where our capture area will be and whether it's got legs. And I admire them. I had a very small part in it, but they did a huge, well, we, yeah, huge amount of groundwork at the start trying to work out how you incorporate something, how you register a name, how you do all this, you know, nuts and bolts stuff to where it's growing now. It's just so much credit to the people that have kept it going and, and it's grown organically and it's grown independently. It's now, it's not a, you know, a, just an organisation that writes submissions for funding. It's standing on its own feet and it's a destination organisation to run extension and things in the ground. And it's really unique in the, the sense how it's, survived and thrived because go from Dookie, it's sort of, I don't know, what's that, four or five hundred, no, sorry, six or seven hundred mil rainfall up to Lockhart at 400 and it's got members all the way through and it's just, it's doing some really, really high level stuff and, you know, their motto, which is farmers inspiring farmers, I mentioned about different people learning in different ways, it's really holds true because we've got some great research organisations at top end but down the bottom of the pyramid where our levy payers are and people are, a lot of them learn laterally. They learn across from another person. They look across the fence. They go to a Rift Plains day. Where I was where one this morning, actually, the Pulse walk this morning at Daysdale. It was great. 25 people, great conversation. 
and the facilitators can just get that they, they open up the conversation and there's so much learning from farmer to farmer and that's how river riverine plains formed and that's how it's probably sustained because it gives a platform for people to not only be introduced to really high level research but also it gives them a forum to to ask and be asked questions and we've definitely found that like the I'll say the farmer to farmer learning and more broadly the agronomists and researchers and it's part of this the evolution that is GRDC in conversations is going we've got such great science and research that we know and can get out through the channels but then actually the benefit of having people like yourself and the other guests we've had whether they're advisors researchers academics across the gamut of the grain growing industry well people are not just getting to know the human behind it they're actually learning and there might be a couple of things that you say or one thing or half a dozen that can then actually relate to and go, oh, you know what? I loved how Roy said that and I'm going to come bring that back into my business and I think I'm going to try and do this a little bit more actively. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that was one of my criticisms of GRDC uh, some time ago. It was a, a really good organisation. The top, A lot of this white coat research was coming down fantastic, but there was a divide between that and the levy pays. It was too big a gap and to their credit, now regionalised their offices and they've got people on the ground that have got grower relations managers, you know, scattered throughout the regions and that can give growers pretty quick feedback on queries, constraints, opportunities, which is fantastic. And so it's, you know, it's a big ship and it's not always going exactly in the right direction, but it generally is heading that way, which is really good because without the people, without the levy payers, it's nothing there. Yeah, and I think that's a, a key piece, isn't it, of, of having that involvement, having those touch points, but also for the growers who are listening to this to actually get involved in those conversations. And if there's a, a piece or an area that you're looking to find out more or that you think actually deserves a little bit more attention, jump on in and, re- and reach out because that feedback is always going to be far more beneficial when it's coming from the ground up. Oh, look, absolutely, it is. I mean, this organisation, GRDC, feeds information out, but it's also looking for information to be fed in about what is needed in in sub-regional areas, what's going on, and that's where Farmers on the Ground, Rift Plains, FarmLink, all these organisations have a big role in that because we're actually pretty unique in the world. There's not many connected research organisations like GRDC and now in Canada, you might have the Canola Research Association, you'll have a Wheat Research Association, but they're working in silos, they're not working together in a systems basis. And I think what we all want to know is what is the best system in our area or what's our best system choice in our area to, to stay in the game. And that's the sort of stuff that's coming out in the ground at the moment, which is really good. Yeah. Now, I've really enjoyed talking about your progressive approach to how you actually farm, how that's evolved. The other area I am really keen to chat to you about, Roy, is around the farm safety and and mental health aspect of how do we actually look after our people better? Because I know it's somewhere that it's an area which you've got quite actively involved in and and keen at talking, I guess, more to because it is so important. How has farm safety and mental health come in and and had an impact on your life? Yeah, so farm safety, I suppose, firstly, as a a dad and a granddad and an employer, it's um, is making sure everyone gets home, whether it's kids come out here for a holiday, you know, sleep or whatever, whether it's a new employee, whether it's someone been around, whether it's me. I mean, you know, I still climb silos, but I don't want anyone else to climb silos because they shouldn't be doing it, but I still do it. That's, I fear for other people's safety, I suppose, but you also got to look after your own and how you manage that. I think 
safety around farming is a lot better than what it was. I think we've learned a lot from mining and from corporate farming about how we should go about things. And a lot of time it is actually slowing down and being in the moment. And I've got examples of myself and which has just done some terrible things when I was younger, you know, with uh, as far as being bogged and, and cutting corners because your, your mind's on actually why did you go in there and this, you knew you shouldn't have driven through there in the first place. So one, you're angry. Two, you're frustrated because there's a truck waiting to load down the other end of the paddock and if you get the bin out, you'll get down and get loaded. So you, you have all these things going in your mind but actually not what you're actually supposed to do the time. And there was one time there, oh, gee, Leanne, my wife, had a little baby in arm. She was pulling me out of a bog and um, the drag chain snapped and went through the back window and showered them in glass. No one got hurt, but I suppose that was one of my early things about what should we have done differently here. Uh, snatch straps weren't invented in those days, but there's a lot of good information around now how we should do things, whether it's extracting bog vehicles, how we should take the time to go and hire that cherry picker to go and do a job to clean out a gutter instead of hanging off a front-end loader. These things, uh, we just, in agriculture, if a corporate was doing it, they'd probably do it the right way. A mining company would definitely do it the right way. In agriculture, we're probably still catching up in those areas. I think fatigue management, the trucking industry, you know, you keep a log and you go, well, this is only how many hours I can do. We haven't got to that yet in agriculture. I think we probably should. And some farmers will say, well, that's ridiculous because there's a rain coming and you've got to get it in and we've all done all-night shifts and gone 36 hours and done all this and that's fine. But is it fine? It's fine until something goes wrong. And I think, yeah, we can get, get better in, in some of those areas. It's just, just slowing down and being aware of, of where we're at and, and what we're doing at the time. Regarding mental health, again, technology-wise, we've never been better connected we're having this conversation, it wouldn't have been possible 10 or 15 years ago. And it's like we're in the same room, that's great. However, I think in agriculture, never been more isolated from each other. Most of the farms are grown in scale. Most of the towns here that are under a thousand people have an aging demographic with less services. So people travel further and are less connected locally. The things we still got going well in there is regional football, netball, those sort of things that happen on a Saturday, which are really important because a, a phone call or a, a text is not the same as, as me looking at you sitting over, having a beer or having a coffee and, and actually having eye contact with someone. It's just so important. And we've had less opportunity to do that. When I said earlier on that the farmers' farms were smaller, there was a lot more cooperation that we'd mark lambs for our neighbour and they'd come over and mark lambs for us. So there's this cooperative sort of venture. So you had more more interaction. And again, with Probably in those days, there was more livestock in the area, so there was probably more labour required. And now, as I say, a 500-horsepower tractor, you can get a lot done with one or two people. People are putting in amazing. They're putting in, you know, four, 5,000, 6,000 hectares with a couple of people, maybe three people that can get it all done, where that might have taken 10 people a few years ago to do the same job. And we're social animals. We're supposed to be walking, we're supposed to talk, and we, uh, we probably have limited opportunity to do both, less than what we used to do. I think, yeah, isolation can sort of enhance when you're feeling down, it, it makes it worse because you can't get it off. I think women are, you know, you should hold a light up to women. They just do it so much better than men. I think men are getting better at it, but women can get it all out in a cup of tea and it's all over and they move on and men just bottle stuff up to a degree. and. We just got to work at it. I think it's just a crying shame and it's it's not right that 
if I walked out this room here and tripped over and broke my leg, there'd be an ambulance here in an hour and I'd be right getting better next day in, in hospital in Albury. But if I rang Ollie up and said, look, Ollie, I'm, I'm really sad and I, I struggle to get out of bed and I don't know what to do, and you rang someone for me and it, it could be six months before you could get anyone to talk to. That's not right in Australia in a first world country. We've got to do better than that. We, these services are just chronically short. And we know what the statistics are like in isolated areas, whether it's professionals working in isolated areas, not just agriculture, but people working in isolated regions. The statistics are um, awful. And, uh, you know, as a nation, we need to take that on. It's certainly sobering. And I think a big part, and if anyone hasn't checked it out, in, in earlier in 2023, just depending on when people listen to this, but earlier in 2023, Norco and the National Farmers Federation did actually do a report which was looking at the state of mental wellbeing for Australian farmers. And, and as you say, those statistics that came out of that are incredibly sobering. I think where the positives come out of it is going, okay, well, that's the baseline. Let's make that as bad as it gets and how do we actually improve from that? And I think, Roy, having conversations like this and you actually sharing your insights is really just such a, it's such a huge part in the beginning of this conversation and I think this progression because ultimately it's going to make our businesses, our families, our communities and, and the broader industry so much better when we do actually think far more proactively about mental health and safety and all of those, I guess, the human aspects that actually come back into the farming side. I agree entirely. I think if you're down, and we're all down, I mean, we don't. It, life's not linear, it's not a straight line, we're up and down. It's when those downs get harder to get out of and they last longer, it's really difficult if you don't have or don't feel you can reach out to someone and have a chat. And uh, I've supported people and I've been down at various times. I've sought out a psychologist who's been a great help. It didn't change everything, but it certainly helped to talk things out and try and um, maybe help clarify why you are where you are at the time. And um, it was great help, and I'd recommend it to anyone. And it's not a, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of actually being proactive and doing something about it. But unfortunately, for many of us, we actually don't realise we're down. And other people might see it, but sometimes you can't see it yourself. And I think I can jump in firsthand there as well, and just say that the benefit of actually getting out of your own head, and this might be in a in a mental well-being thing, but actually from your business point of view as well, that benefit that you can get from getting out of your own head and especially verbalising these things is is hugely powerful. Roy, we've covered quite a bit of country from your little pocket there down in Rand, but I've got five questions we're asking everyone, so they they're designed to be off the cuff kind of first things you think about and. The first one is, what's something that you've got on your bucket list? That's a good one. I'd like to, yeah, I'll probably do a trip around Australia with my wife in a couple of years, do the big loop around, I think, in there. That's, yeah, I'd like to do that. The big lap. What's your favourite grain-based dish or grain product? Favourite? Oh, wheat bix. Oh, nice one. Who would be three people, past or present, if you could invite anyone around for, we'll call it a bowl of wheat bix, who would you invite? Steve War. Barack Obama and Sid Kidman. Interesting. It'll be a very interesting chat, a bit of past, a bit of present. Yep. Loved how Sid Kidman thought about things and how he viewed things differently to other people. What was your first ever paid job? First ever paid job was going up to our neighbours at, oh, I was about 16, holding rams. It was a stud. So I stood there and held rams all day. It was an EH Holden ute. They had a rusted fuel tank on it, so we, we tied a 20-litre drum to the back window and filled it up with petrol so it would run to the motor, and I drove up there with a 
PhU for my first job. My second one, funnily enough, was, yeah, when Dad employed me after I left school for that 12 months and uh, things were going that bad after about a month, he said, you can stay here, but I can't keep paying you. So I, I stayed anyway. And just as well you did. I wasn't worth the $32 a week. I, I wasn't worth the, I think the award was $32 and I wasn't worth that, but I was getting fuel and a bit of beer money, so that was all right. It wasn't good for the ego. <laughs> What's a question that you've got for a future guest or something that you're curious about at the moment? What am I curious about? It's nothing to do with agriculture. It's probably a, a global question about how we can actually, how we can be better. I mean, what's happened at Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East? Why are we where we are? I was in New York on September 11 and we'd gone up the Trade Centre the day before and the only reason I'm here today was there was a lot of cloud around it and a lot of other people and, and they didn't fly that day, they flew the next day. And it made me think a lot about the world then and, and how it would change, but that's 22 years ago and unfortunately it's, I uh, don't know really if it has changed for the better. That was a really defining moment in my life at the time. And you thought, I thought society's got to change, we've got to be kinder, we've got to, got to look after each other. But that's, that's the thing I'm curious about, how we can get better. And I'm not talking about Australia or America or I'm just talking about the global community. We've got so much energy, if we could put it into something, you know, collectively good, it would be a lot better place to live if people could just be kinder to each other. It's the real human side of it all, isn't it? Yeah, to be more, you know, considerative of diversity, it's not, not my way or the highway. Roy, thank you so much. I think that's such a, a perfect way to kind of wrap the conversation. But I think overall, thank you for spending the afternoon, the time with us, because the way you think and the way you've approached your business and the the benefit that you're making not just to your farming business, but the community. And I, and I think this way of thinking is so important for us as a sector to actually verbalise and get out in the open as well. So thank you. Yeah, that's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I was thinking about one thing. I, you said one of the three things you hope for, and this is difficult for me because my family's not connected at the moment. It's been sad the last couple of years. And I suppose if I wished for something, it was family reconnection for reconciliation and connection. That certainly is on my mind. I hope you do get that, Roy. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah, because at the end, there's only three things in life that's important to me is my family, my mates and my health. And uh, there's nothing else really. Everything else falls into place after that. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for joining us, Roy. No worries, Ollie. Good on you. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grain sector. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.